0: Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. Let's turn the microphone over to Duff McKagan for the joke of the week.
1: Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling me. Out. Listen, man, our dog got out last night, uh, so I went to the park and looked for 20 minutes. Couldn't find it. I came home. My wife said, you didn't look, you didn't look hard enough. So I uh, shaved my head, got some tattoos. Still couldn't find the dog.
0: Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Uh, I think we might have heard that one before uh, or something similar, but it's okay. I mean, Duff's been doing this for over three years. If he has a couple repeats, I don't mind. Uh, Thanks to Duff for calling every single week. It wouldn't be a Friday here on Talk is Jericho without a uh, joke of the week, that's for sure. And it wouldn't be a Thursday if it wasn't uh, for the Winnipeggers. Come laugh with me and Dave Spivak and Rybo every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern on my YouTube channel and Facebook page. This week, it's all about uh, high school yearbook write-ups. You guys have those here in the states, where they you give your uh, you know most embarrassing moment, most cherished moment, your fate, your goals. It's actually pretty funny. So uh, come join the Peggers and see pictures of us when we were in high school now on Facebook and YouTube. And no Saturday night special this weekend. There's lots of uh, things going on. Is now that the kids are back in school, there's a lot more activities on a Saturday night. So don't don't fret. We're still going to do the Saturday Night Special whenever I can. Uh, this weekend, there will not be one. People always yell at me when there is a Saturday Special. Why didn't you say anything? Well, I'm saying, saying something right now. So uh, no SNS, but I'll let you know I can do the next one very soon. But what I can do is continue to release Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday, like clockwork. And returning to the show this week, my longtime friend and Talk is Jericho alumni, Eli Roth. I think this is probably his, I don't know, fifth or sixth appearance on the show. But this time, we're welcoming another great American filmmaker, Mark Borchardt. Uh, he's the man who created the horror short film Classic Coven, also the subject of the 1999 film American Movie, which documented the three years that Mark spent writing, shooting, and editing Coven. Or is it Coven? <laughs> That's something they debate in the movie. He's working on a sequel to that film, and he's working on a bunch of other stuff as well. He's a very creative, uh, quirky guy, uh, as is Eli, as is myself. So he and Eli uh, talk about their creative process, and we all talk about some of our favorite movies and directors. It's a great discussion about the art of filmmaking. Right here on Talk is Jericho. So the, the cool thing about kind of everyone being under stay-at-home orders is that there's a lot of chance to talk to some old friends, make some new ones. So uh, Eli Roth has been on Talk is Jericho many times before. But we also have a mutual appreciation for, for filmmaker and film uh, expert Mark Borchardt. So, this is actually the first time, uh, b- besides a brief conversation that you and I, Mark, had the day that the three of us are meeting each other.
1: Yes. And, and there's no expert to it. You just know what you know, and that's about it.
2: And, you know, Mark, actually, I don't, if you remember, we spoke when I was making Cabin Fever back in, God, this was October of 2001 or September. I actually tracked you down and asked you to play a part in the movie. And you were, and you were so sweet about it. You were like, Oh, I can't because I just did the one with Jet Lee and I'm a must join for SAG. And it was going to complicate production issues on Northwestern. So you were unable to do it, but you were very, very nice about it. And then I wound up telling Ty West that. And then you wound up working with him in the sequel in, in Ty's Cabin Fever 2, which I thought was a very cool connection.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's all amazing. I, I mean, you, you obviously have a very good memory and I just, yeah, I'm very, Thankful for all of that. It's 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 very cool and time goes by fast and here we are. It's actually twenty twenty now. And but uh Eli, you know, thanks for uh thanks for inviting me for cabin fever though. That uh that was nice of you to, to ask, definitely.
2: Well, you know, I loved it's interesting and, and I know we we don't want to go too far into the past and we'll keep it to the present because there's a lot of stuff I I've, I've been following your your Twitter and I just love all the kind of inspirational stuff that you put out there. But I, I really felt a kindred spirit when i did see the documentary and i felt like man this is someone i had a parallel childhood the way you described seeing dawn of the dead for the first time that we didn't know was you know independent or low budget or what was 16 millimeter we just knew that there was something different and when you rented a movie like demons i was like i don't (laughs) understand why this doesn't feel now we know it's an italian movie that was dubbed in english and shot in italy with european actors redubbed but at the time, those movies felt like they had no rules, and you could just go crazy and and they were it was just such a much more exciting exciting way you know kind of cinema um, and I feel like you've really kind of kept to your own aesthetic over the years and what you've pursued and what you've what you've filmed, but I always felt this kindred spirit with you even before we spoke
1: well, first of all, like with the Romero situation is that you know obviously that he uh, was part of a commercial house back in Pittsburgh and they were perpetually challenge to create these low-budget commercials and their imaginative prowess was uh, continually had to be invoked and then that sense of that sensibility of being effective with what you had kind of transmuted like when he shot his film in the mall there was a sense of spatiality there was a sense of mastery of the editing concept uh, with rhythm and time that kind of you actually felt its presence that this was someone learned in the craft of editing and composition. So with that film, it stood out as with the uh, immediate presence of someone who was actually a craftsmanship in the the field of uh, of cinema itself via these commercials being shot uh, by him in uh,
0: uh, Pittsburgh.
2: But also horror movies, you know, were so, forget- even if it's low budget, you don't care if the scare is good. And when I watch, you know, you, you think about the Super 8, you know, the more the scarier the Super 8 movies, like we could literally line up Psycho Station Wagon, Letterface vs. Kitty carryall like some of the splatter <laughs> on the linoleum, like my Super 8 movies, I, you could switch them and I guarantee you, other than the location, they would be indistinguishable. It's like we had, we were both trying to do the same thing at the same time.
0: Well, let me throw my hat in there too. I I did, we did them all the time as well. And the series that we had was don't go to uncle Earl's cabin for the weekend. And the the killer was the bag man. Why? Because there's nothing else we could find to put over the guy's head. So we just literally (laughs) took a paper bag, cut the eyes out and he became the bag man. But it's all. Ha- we all- a killer. <laughs> it all starts the same way when you're a kid w- with the advent of video cameras. Now suddenly everyone can make a movie when you're 13, 14, 15 years old.
2: Well, you know, Chris, you bring up something interesting because, you know, with us, we were, I was, we were, you know, Mark, I imagine you were the same one. Like having a Super 8 camera and using it to make movies, it was kind of a rare, it's kind of a rare thing to do that. But now everybody has has cameras, obviously. And, you know, Mark, I find, you know, you've been able to take your your whole world in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, and you give it this kind of, you see it through this almost like an Ingmar Bergman-like filter, that you see everything in this kind of poetic, interesting way, that some people see their t- towns or where they live as dreary or drab, and you really have seen kind of the beauty and gray skies and all of these things. And I think... Yeah, actually,
1: should, you, almost, you almost talked to the wrong, wrong guy, and actually... I'm from Milwaukee, so that you're, you're kind of playing into an illusion. Actually, all of that stuff that you're referring to, I'm actually from Milwaukee and live in Milwaukee, and that was all filmed in Milwaukee, so you have to look at that as kind of like some okay. uh, uh, misaligned data uh, for, for, for reasons. So it's actually all over, this is that in real life, in the real world, this is all mm-hmm. occurring in Milwaukee, even to the point as, as we speak in this moment.
2: But I love the way you you kind of see things, and all of the things are about you know you're you're kind of finding your creativity in writing, and what I've just been curious sort of how you've been. Everyone's kind of going through obviously a different experience with the the quarantine, but I sort of there's so many different avenues we can talk about. I'm just curious about how it's affected your creative process, what you're making at the time, and sort of how you're able to tune out distractions and and kind of create.
1: Well, first of all, there there is no effect whatsoever. I, I I would estimate it would take about at least a year for me to realize that something's potentially <laughs> amiss and maybe want to go to a film or a restaurant. I, I don't – I um, I just – there are some people that have revealed that if it doesn't I mean, obviously, it will go back to uh, normal. But if it wouldn't, they'd be fine either way. And I, I've got an, enough – I'm a rich interior life, both figuratively and literally – and I'm already 30 years behind, so if they said, Hey, you got to stay in the crib for a year, I wouldn't blink an eye, it wouldn't matter to me. And I don't understand the isolating part of it because I'm in a city of a million and a half people in the lake community, I'm looking at people right now safely exercising, so it, it doesn't, there's no effect for someone like me because every minute a new thought the the mind regenerates itself so it's like whoa i'm alive you know and there's all these options and i I, like i said i'm 30 years behind i've got so many screenplays so much editing so much music so much things to do that there's no there's no effect that potentially other people who are going nuts maybe feeling It's, it's not happening over
2: here Chris, do you ever feel that? Because cause Mark, what you're describing, the feeling of being 30 years behind, I feel that weirdly, I feel that as well. I feel like i I once read a quote from Terry Gilliam that he said, he's just depressed that he's going to die before he can make all the movies that are in his head. And I feel like there's this constant scramble of just, I have to write it all down before, you know, I'm out of here. I don't know, Chris, because you, you're always doing so much with your, you know, the, the cruise tours and the wrestling and the books you write. Do you feel like and the music, you're like, I have to do everything before I die. or
0: I'm already behind. I think it's it's one of those things like when I was a kid, you know, it's the typical story that I always say. I wanted to be in a rock and roll band and I wanted to be a wrestler. So once I was able to accomplish those, then any other project that I felt, you know, worthy of trying I could pretty much make it happen to a certain extent. So I have a lot of stuff going on, but I'm also a completist. Like once I start something, I have to finish it or at least get it rolling until I can move on to the next. So it's a little bit different in that there's no boundaries on me on what I want to do creatively. But when I start one thing, I really try and finish it or at least set it a sail, uh, you know, to get the voyage going before I can go to the next. I get the feeling, Mark, that you have a lot of things going on at the same time, that you're spinning a lot of different plates.
1: Yeah, exactly. But there's also, because life is serious and life is precious, there's no anxiety to get anything done. There's there's no sense of failed romanticism or anything like that or, or any illusions created like that. It's done at a um, reasonable, healthy pace. And there's no like, oh, I wish I would have done that or that. Because today is actually your day to do that, and since I'm already on the case, I'm already in the game. I can die without anxiety. In fact, as we speak, I have to make notes for the rest of the day to make
0: sure that you know things get done. So that's where that stands. I know Eli has a couple of questions he wants to ask. He's been uh, talking about it for weeks. But before we turn the microphone over to Mister Roth, let me say thank you to one of the great talkers, Jericho, sponsors, who's making this episode possible. And that's America's most hated jeweler, Stephen Singer. Other jewelers hate him for his unbelievably low prices, and that's why we love Stephen Singer here. Great prices and amazing quality is what you'll get at IHateStevenSinger.com. And Stephen sells a lot more than just his famous gold-dipped roses. Stephen has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. So when you're ready to take that big step, or maybe you just want something special for an anniversary, Stephen Singer's got you covered. He's got the perfect piece of jewelry to say, I love you. He also has uh, also has the Ready for Love engagement ring. Uh, it's a collection that is no hassle, risk-free, expertly picked, and ready to go. And don't worry, Steven Singer is not going to let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over 20 years, and he's recently kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He's got real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through his new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, emails, all with extended hours, And if that's not enough, Steven Singer also offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Plus, he's got interest-free financing available online as well. And that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, back with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home. It doesn't get any easier than that. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com and get fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Go check them out now. All right, Eli, what do you want to ask Mark?
2: Well, there's two things that I want to ask. One is certainly a lot of people have been asking me for movie re- movie recommendations in the quarantine. And I know that Mark really has an encyclopedic knowledge of some more obscure movies. And I feel like when, you know, people like Mark or myself that really can go like deep on movies or you, Chris, you have to almost be a sommelier and sort of guide people you don't want to start them at the most weird, esoteric, advanced one. But I saw on Twitter, Mark, you you know, Sean Baker had posted uh, the Blu-ray of Putney Swope for that he right. got Vinegar Syndrome. And I was like, I forgot about Putney Swope. I didn't know there was a 4K scan. And I ordered a whole bunch of Blu-rays from them. But that is that's such an example of a movie that is so like ahead of its time, of its time and contemporary. I was curious if you've been doing any lists or recommendations or you know, what, what stuff, uh, if you had any favorite picks that, or what you've been watching this quarantine?
1: Well, first of all, I, I'm i not going to recommend really anything to anyone because I'm not going to impose my case on someone else. And then there's also kind of like echelons of, you know, from the primitive to the academic person. So, but anyway, when you mentioned Putney Swope, it, it's like, well, don't, I mean, just to be obvious, don't forget like Brian De Palma pre-Cary Days, he was actually on the, uh, really at the apex of American uh, experimental narrative filmmaking, which included um, High Mom and Greetings, which is not unlike Putney Swope in a sense and tone. can go back to Frankenheimer's seconds. And if, someone, if you haven't seen that, what a marvelous film. And this, again, is in the realm of even ending with like Dennis Hopper's last movie, like in 71 yeah. or whatever. Uh, when you say Putney Swope, it's kind of like in the middle of that mid sixties or early seventies era like a uh, William Greaves's uh and *Taxiplasm*. That was the movie, it. yeah.
2: You mentioned that yeah. movie and I hadn't seen it. I heard you talking about it on on the movie geeks. Um and I it, that sounded really like that it's it's just like a whole other treasure trove of movies. First De Palma, that early De Palma, high mom is probably you know, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, next to Scarface, De Palma movie. I think High Mom is a masterpiece. Hmm. There's an Arrow put out of a great remastered Blu-ray of A Wedding, Greetings, and High Mom. Um, but it does have that same, you know, especially with the b Black Baby stuff, the the yeah, radicals. There it's you the go. same charged. It's like Putney Swope 68. Also, Bogdanovich's Targets. I watched yeah. recently. I was putting that in that you know, political movies kind of in with a thriller buried inside of it, as as Quentin says. But there's such an interesting period of those, you know, kind of those new filmmakers with Seconds and Targets and High Mom and Putney Swope. Um, And David Holzman's Diary as well. Oh, okay, that's another one. Have you seen that? That, No, I've never. That's
1: one to see. Yeah, David Holzman's Diary is actually one of the uh, premier premier evidences of that era
2: Hmm. awesome and so david holds diary psychoplasmic oh my man it's
1: symbiocycle taxoplasm take one take one man what you could do is you could break it into it you could break it into its four component parts symbiocycle taxoplasm
2: and then take one
0: and I want everybody to learn how to spell that. There will be a quiz later.
2: That's good. But I love it. Well, that's the great <laughs> thing about cinema is that you think, not that you think you've seen everything, but that there's some masterpiece that's out there that's waiting, waiting to be discovered. You know, I've been kind of people, did you ever see, I've been sort of watching a lot of the early French, kind of 80s French new wave. Like, did you ever see Diva, the Jean-Jacques Beignet film from nineteen? Oh, yeah. yeah
1: I, I think, I, I think I, I've seen that several times for one. And I think I actually... Got to see it up on the big screen at least once. No, Diva, I've seen, I've seen several times.
2: Yeah, I love Diva. Diva to me feels like the start of modern cinema. Like the Tarantino, Luc Besson, mm. even David Lynch. So many Tony Scott, so many filmmakers. You know, and then also the kind of the '90s stuff, the the Delicatessen, Janae and Caro. I've been watching that lately. George C. Scott and Hardcore. I rewatched. Yeah, schrader and then i kind of went from hardcore after i watched targets i went into star 80 um which i'd seen as a kid that i hadn't rewatched yeah Yeah. like have you seen that chris amazing performance of eric roberts it's really incredible
0: yeah i remember when that came out i saw it very it was one of the first uh movies i ever rented on vhs because that warner vhs i remember it. yeah because of uh mariel hemingway and there was there was you know a promise of seeing some some bare breasts which when you were 13 years old that was what all you cared about back then was trying to rent movies where you could see some tits.
2: Exactly. Well, I I rewatched it and it was really, uh, you know, I, there's a, there's a documentary about Peter Bogdanovich called one day since yesterday, all about that whole situation where he made, they all laughed with Colin camp and Audrey Hepburn and Ben Gazzara, And he made it with Dorothy Stratton. And then, you know, her husband killed her with a shotgun and he had to edit the movie and he kind of lost his mind. And so I, I watched this, the, the documentary is really, really terrific. But then I rewatched Star 80 after I hadn't seen it, and it's one of the like Eric Roberts. You realize just how great he was. It's really a really interesting movie.
0: Let me ask you guys a question. I mean, both you guys are such deep, deep, very knowledgeable on on, on movies, and I I have certain areas that I'm into. Eli knows my horror knowledge and that sort of thing. But what what was it that got you guys so into the movies? Can you remember being kids, like what? what was your first few movies that you saw that really made you think about the direction and, and the, and the cinematography and that sort of thing?
2: Mark, do you want to go? Well, the silence of who goes first. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> you can, go. I can, I can start. I mean, I remember I vividly, you know, it's weird. I have these benchmark memories. Like I remember being terrified and fascinated by the flying monkeys in wizard of Oz mm. when I was three. I remember going to see star Wars when I was six, just thinking that that was, a real planet that existed. Like I, I, I didn't, that was the movie that maybe just, I'd never been so excited about anything, let alone movies. Mm-hmm. And then when I was eight, I went to see alien. And that was the first time I was conscious of what a director does. And I remember asking my dad, like, what does the producer do? I think I want to be a producer. He said, Eli, the producer puts, finds the money. And then I said, what does the director do? He said, well, the director spends the money. I was like, I think I want to be a director. (laughs) And then I remember seeing the credits for like, I was like 11, like 2001 and Clockwork Orange and it said produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick. And like at your bar mitzvah, when you're 12 or 13, you have to tell the rabbi what you what you're going to do with your life. He said, do you know? But weirdly, I did. And I said, I want to be a producer director. And he said, well, do you want to be a producer or a director? I said, both. Because that's the only way to retain control of your cut. I was like, and she looked at me like I was like an alien. I mean, this was, you know, the mid 80s, but there I really had this awareness of, oh, yeah, you could. And I think it was Evil Dead was the movie that made it accessible for me. Reading Fangoria, when that issue came out and I was like 12 or 13, it said Sam Raimi was 20 or 21 when he made the movie. I thought, oh, my God, you can. That's not so far away. You can be 21 and make a movie and it can wind up in Fangoria. like that, that could actually happen. It could be in a video store. That concept, when I was 13 or 14, really kind of gelled in my brain. That's the path I have to take.
0: What about you, Mark?
2: Yeah, I, uh, I was just
1: studying books and I was looking at uh, very dramatic black and white film stills and it was very fascinating. So I got in, into film just through reading, looking at the, uh, the dramatic imagery of all of these films, like Bergman and so on and so forth. So I just started to, when I finally got a Super 8 camera back to focus, made sure that it was extremely in focus, that the compositions were symmetrically aligned, and that the editing was down to the frame. And that's, that's how I, I got into it. Again, more through a academic avenue, in a sense. But yeah, so I wasn't like in front of the TV. I wasn't doing this or doing that. It was more uh, interior. And it was also kind of like uh, symbiotically aligned with the outside world, looking at the trees, looking at the, uh, the, the homes and all of that stuff and, and finding um, aesthetic inspiration in that.
2: Mark, do you remember shooting stuff on Super Eight, and then you'd have to like mail it or drop it a lab, and would come back two weeks later, and that was like (laughs) the most nerve-wracking time, praying your stuff was in focus. Do you remember that?
1: Well, of course I remember it because we had the. I bought the film at Kmart, dropped the film off at Kmart, and I understand what Eli's talking about. If you know there'd be scratches, or if they completely mess it up, or so on and so forth. Fortunately, I I never ever in Super Eight or sixteen millimeter had that. I was very fortunate that that didn't happen and it was always so magical to put that film in the projector and see something that you had uh, filmed come to life. Truly magical.
0: Makes me remember the very first movie I can ever remember seeing. I'll tell you guys what that was. But first, I want to tell you about something I discovered that's making it so easy to recover from a night of cocktails with the Winnipeggers or a morning after the Saturday night Special. I grab Goodies Hangover, mix it with a glass of water, drink it down, and get on with my day. Goodies tastes good as well. It's not like you have to force it down. I know you guys have been there the night out and then the brutal morning after, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you smarten up and get yourself Goody's Hangover, it's a pain relief that will take care of the killer headache and the body aches that always seem to come with a hangover. Plus, it'll uh, help restore your mental alertness. You can say goodbye to fatigue, drowsiness, and fogginess that the hangovers usually cause. And like I said, Goodies Hangover tastes great as well. It comes in a berry citrus boost flavor. You can toss it back as is, or you can mix it with water. Just don't let that hangover slow you down ever again. Get Goody's Hangover and let its formula stop pain fast and provide that boost of alertness you need. So now you can have that fun night without worrying about how you feel the next morning get yourself some goodies hangover at Amazon or Walmart goodies hangover real medicine for real hangovers fast relief with a boost of alertness the very first movie I can remember seeing was a movie by uh, by Stanley Donnan called the little prince you guys know this movie it's starring I don't know it's starring Gene Wilder and dude it's one of the weirdest movies ever and I watched it back a few years ago and it's very French kind of avant-garde about a kid in the desert who disappears and he, there's a, Gene Wilder plays a giant fox and all this sort of stuff. And for some reason, my parents took me to it because I guess they thought Little Prince and I was a little kid. But I still specifically remember seeing that movie in the theater. And it's amazing. This is 1974. It's amazing how those movie moments can be retained in your mind for your entire life. It's, it's
2: also those things like the certain music or movies like that's sort of which that's where your aesthetic is formed. If it catches you at a certain age, a certain movie at a certain time, and like it, it's weird it's the way you talk, the way you dress. They had that they had that power. I mean, Mark, do you find do you, uh, do you find inspiration in anything today or do you find yourself kind of going back to the classics or do you go to literature? Okay. Okay,
1: all good, and we'll we'll be all answered. First of all, I want to clarify that Kmart was on uh, 76th at Good Hope on the northwest side of Milwaukee. So those listening in Milwaukee will be saying, like, damn, cool. (laughs) Now, as an inspiration, I read over 100 books at a time. I've got thousands and thousands and thousands of books. I calculated that if we have to be uh, inside the crib, I could uh, do 300 years uh, because I got enough uh, material. I sat and did the calculations. So in reading, of course, uh, it, it's great aesthetic inspiration films in the here and now, of course. I mean, I could go on and on, you know, Greta Garrowick's work, Noah Baumbach's work. I mean, just et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I mean, uh, and that's that's like bypassing like Philip Carell, bypassing all the people that I can't even think about right now that are just having all of these wonderful contemporary authors. Films have been around publicly, since the mid-1890s. So that's over 120 years of treasure. So, yeah, I, I dig contemporary film. Definitely with it's kind of like real, a lot of those films, sophisticated films, with its adherence to uh, the symmetrical instinct, making very clean, airy lines and stuff like that. Definitely. And there's inspiration all over. But it's not a matter of consumerism. Again, it's an act of symbiosis. It's an act of nourishing oneself whether it's other from other aesthetic forms or life itself or your own interior manifestations it all comes together man and you keep rolling
2: mark are you a fan of the film killer of sheep by charles burnett
1: first of all i had the opportunity to see that on the big screen on 16 Uh, Mm um yeah late 70s watch um yeah i I was born up into that i went to the university and we were we had years of experimental film crammed on our fold. I'm not talking about Burnett's offering. I'm talking about all of the package yeah, there. Package, I mean, Maya, product. Yeah. All uh, 16 millimeter, just mm-hmm. nonstop year after year.
2: It's something. I remember when I, in film school, you know, you're like, I, you grow up with Star Wars and the eighties movies, and then they show you meshes in the afternoon and Unchained on yeah. the loo. And yeah. at the time a lot of that stuff was unreleased, so you're only watching it in a theater and Talante and you just come out of these things and your whole yeah. your whole framework, your whole it's like your whole compass has been reset.
1: Yeah, it's a, in in all almost three films that you mentioned in the last one by um, Jean de Gaulle, you know, that's the only feature that he made and, and in some circles, you know, they always say, Oh, the greatest film ever made, just pure mythology. But that when you say when you mention that film, that's what it reminds me of. You know, it's it's one feature, and it's like the great film. But anyway, yes.
0: Eli, when you when you go to film school, what what exactly do do you do at film school? Like, what are they teaching you?
2: Well, I mean, when I was there, in you know, a freshman year, it was Super Eight. I mean, that has obviously changed now. Um, But they they told us that you get your hands on the cameras the first year. See so, so like half the year it's. Film or like it was film and photography for year one. Then you start getting into 16 millimeter year two. So you were kind of making your mistakes on, you know, photography and super, learning about composition. Some of it's theory. Uh, your English class becomes screenwriting. Um, you have to take like different, you know, there's like the general introduction film classes where they're there showing you rules of the game and rear window and really teaching you about auteur theory and, and sort of critical film analysis. Then as you get older, you can specialize. Like some kids are cinematography nerds. They want to go deep into the camera classes. Whereas I went into, someone told me that they're like Martin Brest and Scorsese's acting teacher. She was this incredible, incredible teacher. And they said, you can't leave without taking her class. Makeda like Kimbrough. She was about 70 years old, but she was like a teenager. And it was like, it, it changed everything. Like a whole point of view of how to direct from an actor's perspective. Hmm. You know, you act in your movies, so, you know, it's a completely different different skill set from from going where you're kind of technically framing the camera in a shot to when you're giving a performance. But that was, so by the time you graduate, you, you sort of find what you like, but it's four years. You just, uh, I, I loved it. Some people think it's a waste of money, but I, I think I was very, um, look, I'm an immature person in my 40s now. So as a teenager, I needed to grow up and it was a good place for me to kind of safely make mistakes. That's what I'll say about it.
1: Yeah, and, and, and for someone to say that it's a waste of money is crazy as hell. I'm, I'm heading, I went to the University of Milwaukee, and that was actually that film program began in the mid '70s, and those guys they knew the experimental filmmakers in that, and I'm autodidactic, so I'm not going to say that. Oh, I learned, you know, I learned stuff obviously in film school. I paid attention to the point. Where one of the professors, when he booked off to work to LA, turned to me and said, "Uh, oh, uh, you want to teach this class?" And I said, "Yeah, you know, hell yeah! Now I'll get paid wow. to do this, and you know, showing the equipment, this, that, the other thing, because I was down with it, and I was into it, and th- those teachers and professors were very attenuated to the world of film and aware of the transactional or. That hey you know you're responsible for doing all of this stuff. I'm gonna keep an eye on you, and all of that. And uh, you know some of us uh, just thrived in it. But I, but I'm not gonna say like oh I learned it in school. No, I learned it on my own, and it was complemented by the academic world. But I and then at the same time I was doing all my own stuff too, doing my own writing, scripts, and storyboards, and whatever had to be done. So. It was just like there was a parallel universe going in film school, what they were doing and what you were doing. So, yeah, I, I, it was just uh, it was a, good, it was a good atmosphere for sure.
2: And, Chris, what Mark says is exactly what I did. Uh, film school is half the equation. You know, if you, I was interning. I was working on movie sets. I was writing my own scripts. But by the time I graduated, I had a job because I was running a producer's office. and reading, I was on the set. I worked on Quiz Show as assistant to the producer. This movie Naked in New York. Like I graduated school with movie credits and I would work on them for free just to get experience. So, you know, I think that a lot of people kind of live in the film school bubble, but the only way to really, you know, learn, you gotta got to get out there and do your own thing. And it's, I think that you've really had such an interesting career and kind of kept it so personal. Was there a moment where you felt a pull, like I want to go and do kind of Los Angeles or New York and do sort of more, different types of you know kind of more hollywood quote-unquote movies or were you always just like i love what i'm doing i want to keep expressing myself and just keep pushing my creativity i'm just curious why you why you um sort of chose the path where you were
1: oh first of all it's because of who i am first of all i've been Los in new york back and forth back and forth back and forth films hollywood acting directing whatever so it doesn't it's not like uh abstract to me it's a very um empirical thing it's hands-on i've I've done it and it's it's not it 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 has nothing to do with my filmmaking filmmaking to me it's a very sensual intellectual ambient form of persuasive living and persuasive work which has nothing to do with um making films in that other world whatsoever i it doesn't it doesn't register to me to do something like that. I'm, I have a responsibility here in Milwaukee. I have a responsibility here in Wisconsin to do my life's work, which has nothing to do with that kind of stuff. My films are these personal uh, tracks of thought and uh, curiosity. So there you have it.
0: That's interesting, Now How does that uh, relate to you? Because you have to walk the fine line as a big-budget Hollywood, very successful director, A-list films, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How do you do those big-money films but still keep them as personal as you possibly can, the way that, that Mark just described?
2: You know, it's really interesting what Mark sounds like. Apparently, there, Quentin was on a podcast recently talking about how Martin Scorsese was offered to escape from Devil's Island, and cassavetti's talked him out of it and said, make personal movies. And then Scorsese went and did Mean Streets because Cassavetes was like, you got to do personal, personal films. That was like a which I think is. And, and look, that's that's I completely I thought that I was going to do that. I thought Cabin Fever and Hostel, in my mind, were not they were never there were both movies that were done. It was a million and a half and then just under four million, you know, kind of outside the system with independent financing. And I thought, you know what? At the time, if I could get these on DVD, they'll make their money back. Hmm. And that was always the goal was to make the money back. But, you know, because they were horror films and they and there was a big audience for it, um, it led to other things. But I sort of kept off, you know, even Green Inferno or Knock Knock. I, I sort of wanted to keep making the first five movies I did were sort of weird personal movies that I wrote. They, they wound up sort of being in more of a mainstream because I, I could couch them in a genre. They weren't like Sundance dramas, that, those kinds of things. But then when I did Death Wish, it was sort of me wanting to try doing a studio movie. And same thing with House of the Clock and its Walls. So the the irony is that even though I'm visible because of sort of having been in inglorious Bastards and done other stuff, in my mind, kind of those first five movies or even Man with the Iron Fist writing, they were very, even though they were straight down the middle genre movies, I was trying to do my personal version of it so that when I got to do a studio movie like House of the Clock and its Walls. And I come up with a bunch of weird ideas like vomiting pumpkins or automaton attacks. I can do kind of personal ideas with like a nice budget behind it. I guess that was, but I, I you sort of make personal, I would find, I was like, I would make movies, personal movies until I go broke. And then I was like, all right, I need a job. Let me do a studio <laughs> right. movie so I can make money. So I could then, you know, you just kind of do it until you go bro- run out of money and then you do another one.
0: I want to talk about a director that all the- three of us really respect, Verna Herzog, But before we do, speaking of making money, I know a lot of you listening right now had to keep running your businesses during the pandemic. You had to stay open. You had to keep it going, just like AEW did. And that makes hiring more important than ever. It's critical that you have the right and best talent to help your business. So good thing that Indeed.com slash Jericho is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring You only pay for what you need. You can uh, pause your account anytime, and there's no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed.com slash Jericho provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. Think about that, three and a half times more likely. And with 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, uh, just like they've done for over 3 million businesses. And right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed uh, with a free $75 credit at indeed.com slash Jericho. Try it out. Uh, this is their best offer available anywhere. You can take advantage of it at indeed.com slash Jericho. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Let's talk about a, a director that all three of us have some some respect for, lots of respect for, in, in Werner Herzog. And I know I've heard you talk about about Werner before, Mark and and you as well, Eli, because uh, that's a director kind of who've always who's always been kind of uh, underneath the wire, so to speak. People who know films know him, but he's never really had the blockbuster, super huge hit. Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, I mean. He, he does his obviously his own personal personal films. Even Dwarf started Small Strozik, uh Heart of Glass, uh, Nasiratu. I mean, it just goes it just goes on and on and on. And uh, I, I don't think there's there's a matter of having a hit or this or that. He's he's like an inspiration doing his thing. His films are wonderful environments of. Human eccentricity in and, in and, you know the, the wide landscape of possibility and so I he lives in his own region man and it's just and it, it's just great stuff.
2: He's amazing. I mean I, I remember when I was and again where film school and you know having a professor that's a really good again like a like a like a DJ or a sommelier someone that can kind of help open your mind up by showing you the right movies at the right time. They showed us Aguirre: The Wrath of God and Fitzcarraldo. Mm. And when you you think you're going to class and you know you're going to see something interesting, and they go, okay, we're going to watch this German movie. It's about the knights, and they're that, and they're this, and they're in the jungle, and they're trying to convert people, and they're the Crusades, and and you're okay, and you're just riveted from frame one. And you know what makes it so powerful is you know that they're there, and you know that you can't act that, you can't pretend that they they're moving. When you see them moving a boat over a mountain, they're actually doing it. And there's a part of you that just can't believe, because film equipment is cumbersome enough, as Mark will tell you, as we all know. Right. Imagine moving a boat along with it. So you start going, who is this guy? And then he's doing the incident at Loch Nesses. You know, like his filmography is so wild and diverse that it's like becomes like Takashi Miike or one of these guys Mm -hmm. that you just you're just in awe of their creative output and indefatigable is the, the word that comes to mind. But but those geary and Fitzcarraldo was that made me want to make Green Inferno as much as Cannibal Holocaust did. I was like, I need to have that experience of going in the jungle with a film crew and fighting the elements and seeing what comes out of it. But Herzog, then you see him on, have you guys been watching him on The Mandalorian? Yeah. He's freaking fantastic. And he was the one who insisted that they use the, the puppet. They were going to do, go full CGI all the time with baby Yoda. And he's like, don't be a pussy. Use the fucking puppet. You built it. Use it. <laughs> and he like shamed them into it. And of course, that's what makes the show is the puppet. So for many reasons, but that's like what's so special about it. So Herzog, it's, it's, it's incredible that even if people don't know, there's the, the verbal influence is actually like baby Yoda is that Herzog is a big part of that in a crazy way.
0: You know, it's funny. um, I was, who does this anymore, flicking through the channels probably about four or five years ago And you mentioned Incident Loch Ness, and I'm a huge fan of lake monsters and that whole lore and mythology. And I started watching it halfway through. I didn't even know what it was. I had no idea. I thought it was a a Herzog documentary. And when that Loch Ness monster comes out of the water, I, I, like, for three or four seconds was like, I can't, What? They, they got that on film, and then I realized it was just a movie. But I, I actually thought it was a Herzog legit documentary uh, because he's so he's such a good actor in that, uh, in that element. <laughs> Who are some of your other influences as filmmakers, uh, Mark? Renier Werner Fassbinder, Tim um, Wenders, uh,
1: Plansky, Cassavetes, Dreyer, Bergman, uh, Antoniani, Renee. Uh, Fellini, um, Goddard, uh, Rivette—it uh, just goes on and on and on. But yeah, I'm, I'm mostly and, or, and of course Wells. I would say Bergman and Wells and Herzog uh, definitely that uh, I, I go deep into for sure.
0: It's interesting that none of them are horror movie directors when you spent so much time working on Coven and 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 now Coven two. Uh, so were, were, were the horror directors still on your radar or, or just the movies themselves is what attracted you to horror?
1: First of all, I, I got to say this as, as a preparatory uh, establishing this is that, you know, when we talk about something like or that, well, you know, none of, this, none of this stuff happens like without people like Tim Hansen and Lila Wilson, who's one of the greatest music supervisors. So it's not just me doing this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. it's thanks to those guys that this my world turns. And as when now coming back to this about horror films and I I, I only see horror as math. I, I don't like to be scared. I don't get into it. I just see it as a particular math challenge. I mean, most actually, more I'm doing the more the scarier sits, and I, I cringe when if I say a horror. It's more like an intellectual abstract film with the horror element to it. But with kind of like, why are these people talking about it? Why is this language digressive? It doesn't add a compelling component to the narrative. What's with this? Well, again, it's a experimental abstract film in potentially the horror genre. Yeah,
2: well, there's some of those movies that fall into this space, Chris. Like if you watch Ingmar Bergman's Hour of the Wolf, it's not a horror movie, but it turns very disturbing. Mm. and horrific and upsetting and so you and there's another film called dog tooth that yorgos lanthimos who did the favorite did in 2009 that's like a very kind of it's almost like Lars von trier's the idiots Mm. these are movies that they they challenge you and they make you uncomfortable and they they have disturbing imagery and they it's like an indelible marker that goes in your mind and leaves you with something like deeply unsettling so yeah I, i love those movies too Hacks on Benjamin Christensen's Witchcraft Through the Ages is, is yeah, one of my yeah. favorites. And Mark, yeah. tell me that I, I just got your movie, The Dundee Project, um, which I'm excited oh, to watch. Oh, um, thank you. I just you. ordered that online. Can you tell us a little bit about that, if people haven't heard of it? Sure, sure, sure.
1: This, this is the deal, is that, as um, you'll see in the extra special features, that I, I don't get into small talk. Actually, they, they pimp that over and over again for entertaining effect i was like what but those are those are great guys the, uh, the dundee project was produced by the, the phone footage guys um and they're just fabulous and it's thanks to them that you got to order that and um it here's the deal that every year in wisconsin and this is the past same, I know present, that they had a ufo gathering in july and i would go because i was like oh wow this is like in my neighborhood so to speak and the reason why the film i didn't set out to do a film about it i just said well i'm not going to sit around with these guys talking about general ds i I can't take it i want to be productive i bring the guitar i bring my camera and i'd film and i'd film year after year without any noble Encompassing intentions, whatsoever. I was like, damn, man, this stuff looks good at sunset. And, you know, and then uh, found footage guy says, hey, man, you know, make a film after all these years. I said, all right. Uh, and that's how that came about. But yeah, it was, it was about interviewing these eccentric people. It was, uh, you know, people were getting drawn, you know, looking at the sky, and it was just very wondrous. And I actually, had I got around to it, was going to make a feature film of it. And they said, "Hey, you know, we'll do this with a short," and that's how that's how it came about. But again, it wasn't it wasn't without any grant. There was it didn't set out with any grand design. It was just this is what I do. This is my penmanship. This is my I'm the author of this footage once a year, and ultimately we put it together.
2: That's really cool. I didn't I didn't realize that was how it came about. Um So, hey, I, I do. Dude,
1: dude, I've made so many different films, in a sense, along those lines that could be put together because I don't care. I like I like being in the moment. I don't sit around, you know, like I'm doing this and I'm doing that because I'm already doing it. And then every once else, in a while it comes together.
2: Do you know who else does that is Al Pacino? He makes these movies that he almost doesn't Looking release. For Richard. Looking for Richard, he released, and um Wild Salome hmm. he released of his documentary about Oscar Wilde. But he has like seven others that he just makes and funds and shoots and edits. It's like between movies, his therapy, kind of what he can control, what his passion is, is making these these documentaries. And and the Wild Salome one is incredible. Mark, can I ask you about theater? Because I see like often on your Twitter yeah. posts, you have doing theater like are you doing a lot of cuz cuz i remember when the documentary came out we actually contacted you and i got your your radio plays like night school like i have cassette tapes of you and i and i love them hey I how just, did how
1: Listen. did you get a cassette tape for that i need a cassette tape for that
2: i'm going to find it my brother my brother like wrote to you or mike or someone and got a copy of it and you were like here you go it's like it's it's like night school like i swear to god i have i'm going to find it for you
1: yeah because, that's kind of weird man because we were doing this on all kinds of formats, I did night run, night school in the creeps. Those are yep. professionally produced, and it, I mean, it was draft after draft of the scripts, casting theater actors. Had Pat, Pat Net, Patrick Nedosine, who did the music for those radio dramas, uh-huh. was the composer who does the music for Colvin, and is doing the music for Colvin Amazing. too.
2: Amazing. So yeah, well, I have. So
1: I love playing music. I can
0: vouch for that, Eli, because you send me a copy of that. Because Eli and I have been friends since about two thousand and five or so. I remember driving down the road in between wrestling gigs, listening to to, to Night School.
2: But Mark, it was like a way of having because I just I just thought like I was so interested in your creative output that I loved. It was like a movie that you could take with you. And I would actually like you're driving or you'd like lower the lights and gather around like it, that was because it was such a fun thing that we used to do as kids and that those old kind of radio plays. I was curious what kind of pleasure, if, if you make a distinction or what you're kind of working on creatively in terms of theater or in terms of those radio plays or films, if you go from one to the other or all at once and, and really how, how you like it.
1: Sure. First of all, I uh, when I when I when I write something, it isn't just like some extra, extemporaneous John. It's like it, there are several drafts. You have to put it together. Carl King, who's one of the just one of these great great aesthetic uh, kings out there, I've done a r- radio drama for him, and I've also written one for myself called Room 18, which is done. Patrick's doing the music for it, and as for theater. Uh, I, did, uh, I did a bunch of plays, and actually three of the three shorts actually got taken into festivals and produced uh, one year here at the Village Playhouse in Milwaukee. I got it out in Los Angeles, they accepted it out at Samuel French, and then back in another play here in Milwaukee. At the, at, so, it, yeah, three for three that I submitted got produced in these festivals, and I've got others in that. So, yeah, I mean, I've got a, like all three of us. There's just a lot to do.
2: It's amazing, and and so can people are are your plays the ones that have been published? Where can people read them or or find them?
1: Well, we, well we're weirdly enough actually the Excuse Me magazine chapbook published uh, what's in the box, which kind of makes its way around like when, when they do fundraiser fundraisers like for the Radio Dad or whatever they have that uh, done. So actually of of all things Excuse Me magazine, like I said, it's in chapbook form. Published one of them, what's in the box and as for the other ones yeah we'll we'll figure out on getting them out there as well so all
0: right so i want to know what you both think the future of movie watching and movie making is going to be and while you think about that for a second i got something especially for for you guys out there who want to quit smoking and vaping try lucy lucy is the nicotine gum that was researched developed and created by caltech scientists it has four milligrams of nicotine and comes in three flavors Wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate, and you can chew it anywhere at work, on planes, while you're running errands, or just hanging out at home, as a lot of people are still doing during this pandemic. And, like I mentioned, if you're trying to quit smoking and vaping, get some Lucy nicotine gum and throw out the cigarettes and vape pens. If you're not a gum chewer, Lucy also comes in a cherry ice flavored lozenge. This will make it even easier. You can have Lucy delivered right to your front door every month. You don't even have to leave your house. And if you go to lucy.co and use the promo code Jericho, you'll get 20% off all Lucy products, including the gum and lozenges. That's lucy.co. Use the promo code Jericho at checkout. And I have to read you this disclaimer as well. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, which we all know. So now that that disclaimer is out of the way, let me tell you one more time. Lucy.co. That's Lucy.co. Use the promo code Jericho and get 20% off. And now is the perfect time to quit smoking and vaping. Let Lucy help you do it. And do it now. Let me ask you guys this. This is something that Eli brought up a few days ago. Speaking of all these films and, and, you know, how much how much content we watch and this sort of thing. What do you think the future of movie watching is going to be? Because, Mark, you say that you pretty much stay in your house and don't really go out to the movies. I know Eli and I are. Oh, no, no, no. That's dude, Hold on. Let me make that correction.
1: Chris. OK, sure. I am always I'm at the, we, I live in Milwaukee. So we've got like three art houses right by each other in the same vicinity. I go see 60-millimeter prints, 35-millimeter prints all the time at the archives. Gotcha. Houses. Okay. So there, it's not some dude. I, I, I'm one of the least people that stays inside, which might seem like the most vastest contradiction you've ever heard, but <laughs> deal with the reality of the paradox.
0: Well, that makes sense, though, <laughs> is that deal with the reality of the paradox. I love it we're all theater goers and i remember when i was a kid when when the vhs and betamax first came out i remember saying to my dad like do you think people still go to the theaters he said yes of course they'll still go because people like the night out they like getting out of the house now in light of what's been going on when the world returns to whatever the new normal is do you think people will, will return to the theaters um do you think there'll be more viewing at home and streaming what's your thoughts on that eli
2: I mean, my hope, obviously, is that people have had enough of being in their house and mm-hmm. they, they want a fun night out. But, you know, you, you do worry when the first time you go to the theater, everyone's going to be worried what, what happens when that person behind you coughs or sneezes. I think it's it's like, is everyone going to go, all right, forget this. You know, I think, I think if everybody feels like there is a way to beat this and there's either a cure or a way to mitigate it, whether, you know, whatever kind of medications they're finding work, I think it's really going to take that for people to look what do I know? I don't know. I, I, I'm i not an expert in, in any way, shape or form. But, you know, there's a real concern now in Hollywood that that, OK, let's say the movie theaters reopen. Will the crowds, will the appetite still be there? The hope is that it is. And I think that, you know, we've been taught to socially isolate, stay away from each other, be afraid of each other. It's really terrible because. You miss the joy of being with a crowd. It's like an incredible, beautiful, wonderful, unique experience. And I think once people have a great night out at the movies, it can remind them of how fun that is.
0: It's interesting, too, because, um, like you mentioned, I, I can see there being some great fear in Hollywood because there's some giant movies that are being pushed back. I'm thinking of The Jungle Cruise, the, the, the new yeah. rock movie. Not only is it getting pushed back a few months, it's getting pushed back for an entire year. Yeah, yeah. What's the reason behind that?
2: I mean, here's the thing. If you have a movie like Ghostbusters and part of your marketing plan of Ghostbusters is, you know, a sports event or some of these movies, I'm just saying like they're going to use the NBA and advertise at the games. Like they do integrations. So when a movie comes out, you look at what, okay, it's baseball, basketball, football. They pay money to integrate with the games and to advertise on TV. If those things aren't happening, how are you going to see it? Also, you've got to commit You know, these movies, they're spending 60, 80 million dollars of marketing, talking about television spots, billboards, huge events. And you need months to plan that out, that if you're not, you can't spend that Mm -hmm. money like Mulan spends the money and now they're sort of stuck. A Quiet Place 2 spends the money and then you build up this momentum and then you have to stop. What they don't want to do is blow out their marketing budget and then they go, sorry, guys, we're not ready to go back yet. So that's that's the fear right now. So they're just pushing it for a year. It's a crazy time, right? No, no one's ever seen anything like this. I don't know, Mark, what's, what's the feeling in, in Milwaukee, Mark? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously in a bubble here in Hollywood. I'm, I'm curious if there's a different vibe or what your kids say or what people are saying. What's, what's the general feeling? I,
1: I think that a more, more helpful reaction would be this is that the things that, uh, don't get spoken out loud and that are uh, held by the quiet half and there's actually a number of people that are, you know, everyone wants everyone to be in health. No one wants to get sick and they want the businesses to survive and all of that. But there are a number of people who are completely fine with not socializing, no culture. And I mean, happy, organized, normal, quote unquote, people who are like, wow, this, whether if culture comes out, I could care less. And I. I, I could care less either way. It means nothing to me. And I, and a lot of people unspoken are just saying, wow, this is a break. This can stay this way. And so that, that's more helpful than just regurgitating popular sentiments. So I'm, um, you know, I'm just letting you know, that's what, that's what's being unspoken, being spoken, unspoken.
2: Yeah. I know. It's just, I, I hear you. I mean, we're not, I'm not trying to have false optimism, but, I think what I've seen in Los Angeles... Oh, no,
1: no, no. You, Eli, everything's coming back. Next summer, you won't even know this happened. Uh, businesses will be thriving. Everything will be... It'll be good to go. You know, not maybe this summer, but next, it'll be back in yeah. business. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I but think- like I said, there's uh, millions of us who are like most calm and most relaxed there'll ever be in their life because <laughs> they're getting the break they
0: were looking for. What were you going to say, Eli, about Los Angeles and Hollywood, the attitude out there?
2: You know, right now, no one can plan movies, but everyone's kind of saying, so, like, there are auditions that are coming up for projects like, oh, yeah, we're shooting in June. You know, you're probably not. But I think that people need to believe that they are. So, and they want to be ready just in case. So everyone, I think, is developing and just getting stuff kind of locked and loaded, you know, hopefully so we can get back to back to. You know, filming in the fall, but it's, it's like every other business. Everyone is worried, you know, the restaurants, this, there's there's so much that we have to go before we get there that it's, people feel weird even talking about it.
0: When you look back in the eighties, everybody in every movie smoking. Like, look, just watch, you mm-hmm. mentioned Ghostbusters, watch the original, it's smoking, smoking. That's something that you that you see it now and it's so foreign. I wonder if the art of shaking hands will now kind of go by the wayside to where we're watching movies like Predator, when Arnold and Carl Weathers like grab their hands and get that big handshake. If people be like, "Ooh, shaking hands," that's that's so strange. You know what I mean? Like it's almost. I'm wondering if that's going to be something that gets left behind because of this.
2: I mean, our festivals going to come back or the, all that stuff. It's it's going to be weird. We, we're in some strange sci fi experiment. There's there's a pretty cool Swedish movie from 2019 that I would say check out if you haven't seen it called Aniara. A-N-I-A-R-A. Um, and it was made, it's one of these, I think it was made for low budget, but doesn't look good. It's kind of like a, a dark version of the show Avenue 5, but it's about these people that are on kind of a space flight. That's like a three week thing. Um, and it's like a city, the ship, it just takes three weeks to get to the planet and it goes off course. And it's like what happens one year, five years, 10 years, 25 years. It's based on a, a poem. And it's really, really, really interesting watching what happens to people in in isolation kind of made me think about it during this time
0: well even just watching cabin fever Eli I told you that I watched it with my teenage daughters the other day um, and by the way the line where, where uh, Dell, <laughs> James del goes I was jerking off with my dog stuck his tongue up my butthole I was like yeah not in front of your 13 year old twin daughters thanks by the a lot way for that one. Was,
2: that was improvised I did not write that James James <laughs> DeBella. James DeBella gets full credit.
0: But there's the one scene there where the cat, that I can't remember what the blonde guy's name is, where he sticks the the handkerchief over his mouth and he just walks away through the forest. Like, that's a lot of people that you see nowadays. If you get too close to someone in a grocery store, they're putting their handkerchief over their face and kind of wandering away. So... You kind of had a little bit of a of a of a prophetic uh, time in that movie as well.
2: It's sort of strange. A like cabin fever and also the Death Wish remake have been the two most you know the, the relevant the ones that are people are thinking about. Death Wish I saw is, is back on like the Fandango top ten of rentals now. People really the remake, yeah, because everyone's thinking about guns and yeah, you know, you see it here. There's the there's the tension and the weirdness when you go out. If someone coughs in a public place, everyone freaks out. People are now people aren't going out. They're trying to get everything delivered. I don't know, Mark. How is it in, in Wisconsin? Are people it's the exact like, opposite? The exact opposite.
1: They're flooding into the store. I'm like, I'm thinking, about there's there's a serious virus. They're in the stores, you know, chopping this that. It's like, oh man, this is crazy. But yeah, so I mean, it's it's different here in Milwaukee. I mean, people are, you know, like I said, they're all out exercising safely, but there's uh, thousands of them choosing to go into the stores, and uh, so yeah, that's something to stay away from for sure.
2: But you probably know everyone in in town where you are i mean that's like you're like the hometown filmmaker so it must be strange you know where everyone can see each other but not get near each other now
1: oh uh, no i mean again like i say this is, this this is there's people out on the streets so yeah i mean you know if they would want to stop and talk or or do whatever but i think and and in, in also on a different sense there there is a contingency of people that are definitely respecting and adhering to the, the parameters of safe conduct for sure and there are those that are not so it, it's not it's kind of like uh, a 50 50 thing here so there's there's no sense of isolation i mean i'm looking at people right now actually so i mean they're out there
2: mark do you film in your house at all or do you like just writing and when you shoot it's because you're shooting or do you ever just grab a camera and start shooting around just to have it
1: Oh, it, it's so beautiful here because in front of me is a complete landscape of, of trees. I have just beautiful footage of snow and trees and autumnal colors. So, I mean, my, my studio, I'm, actually, I'm looking at it right now. I, I can go out there and film, and we film out there. All I got to do is cross the street. That's it.
2: <laughs> and then can
1: you- with the Mortis Carrier 6, I'm just right down the street here in Shorewood. We are filming in the before all of this, filming in the office and all of that stuff. So I, I just have to. I can just walk.
2: How far and into more of the everything's here six. in Milwaukee?
1: Wow, yeah, more of the scarier six. You heard it right, Eli.
2: How far into the process are you on that one?
1: Pr- pretty far, actually. I got all my because I play the psychologist, in it. so I got a lot of. A lot, cut. I did myself in because I write all these convoluted <laughs> lines, man.
2: And, uh, <laughs> yeah, So I,
1: I just, I put the other actors through the paces, you know, through some serious shooting days. I got, uh, Corey Bova, Caroline Miller and, and Dan and Wright starring it and Barca Manashian. And, you know, they're, they're just doing a, a, a great job. And so, you know, not now now's my turn coming up, but now the virus hit. So I, I got more time to memorize these lines, but yeah, we're pretty deep in the shooting. It We we filmed some, uh, most of the major uh, scenes with the great chunks of
2: dialogue. Yes. Oh, so you got hit right in the middle of the shoot, though. That's that's. Yes, tough. sir. That's tough.
1: Yeah, what, but you... again, yeah, 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 but I, but again, that that uh, leaves time for additional planning and so forth. So it's not like time's yeah. being squandered or something like well, that.
2: Well, Blade Runner, the Writers Guild strike hit, and they were suddenly down for eight months, and they just painted sets. That's why Blade Runner yeah, looks yeah, like I Blade guess. Runner. <laughs>
0: Last couple of questions, Mark. I just had watched something when I went down the YouTube rabbit hole of you're talking about Milwaukee and filming around the town. When you were and you did quite a few appearances on the David Letterman show, but there's there's a, a kind of a really cool little uh, kind of a travel log you did for Milwaukee. Uh, did, did you? You seem like you got along pretty pretty well with Letterman. He seemed to take a real liking to you.
1: Yeah, no, I never got it. I just, that that stuff to me, that's not even that's not even part of me. All of that stuff. It's like a, like a put on, and I, I don't even I don't even recognize its existence. Because it, what the thing of it is, is that people, you you have to be responsible to your formative instincts. And there's a lot of people, probably in sports and in dance and so on and so forth, that very gigantic lives, and some of them, not all of them. Oh man, I betrayed myself. You know, I really should have learned this in school, I really should have done that, I should have really did this, that, the other thing, or did these push-ups, or learned history, and toward the end, man, it starts getting to them, and a lot of people are like, oh, man, so the things that you bring up, that th- those don't even exist. What really does exist is, like I said, you know, I could physically cry if, you, if there's betrayal today, and I... I'm mapping out the rest of the day and facing the things that need to be done. And that's the most important. Those are the things that count and that are thought about for sure.
2: You know, Chris, I have a similar reaction when I watch any old TV appearances I did around the cabin fever and hostile time. Like I, I'm having fun and it's me in my early 30s selling a movie, but it just feels like I'm watching a version of a different person ago. And I've, I now think like Mark, where I, all of that just starts to really become a distraction more than anything. It wasn't making me a better filmmaker. It wasn't me really focused on writing. So I just, uh, you know, everything is about just living in the moment and pushing yourself. And look, I, Mark, I see it on your Twitter when you're like, like, it's the beginning of a week. Let's start, let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can come up with. And, you know, I keep thinking, look, obviously it's a very stressful time. It's a very tough time, but if you're a writer, you know, Shakespeare came up with King Lear. He wrote King Lear during the bubonic plague. So like, if you can really, you know, if you can do that, well, that's the
0: thing. Yeah. There's a, a perfect time to be creative.
1: Yeah. What's amazing is actually I am doing a uh, radio drama of King Lear. You know, I, I read a number. Uh, I've been reading Shakespeare for years and I had decided to, to do King Lear. And then I knew right off the bat musically, it would be, in you know, C major, A minor and so on and so forth. And so immediately the music, the tone of the music was already set. And now I'm just, you know, in the process of within a half hour form, obviously it's King Lear's, what are some of the essential elements? And what are you bringing? That's a new voice, a new style and a a dynamic to it. So, yeah. And and I just want to get back on the other stuff that you mentioned. Yeah. I don't even, I don't even look at that stuff. If somebody mentions it, I just ignore it. If somebody sends something, which they usually don't, I just immediately delete it. So i i never even really even aware of any of that stuff. So it's like you're talking about something, and then she's like, "Oh man, you're talking about somebody else, not me." But yeah, anyway, yeah, you know, Shakespeare. That's great in in the fall, in the summer, and uh,
2: yeah, very cool, I mean, Mark. That's yeah, I love that. I can't I can't wait to hear that. I I really enjoyed the the radio plays and the radio stuff that you do. It's really It's just like I I feel like you're this kind of endless fountain of creativity and it just comes out. There's a radio play. There's a stage play. There is a written piece. There is a film. It's like you just and, you know, just reading as much, ingesting it, putting it all through your filter in the world. I think it's very, very cool. And I I just want you to know that I find it inspiring. Oh, and, and likewise, man thanks man
0: well dudes it's been uh, a pleasure to talk to you guys and i'm glad we finally got a chance to uh to have a conversation after all these years of being mutual fans of each other's work mark do you ever go to the west coast at all ever hit la well dude
1: that's that's what i said i'm i was just out there man i'm bad you know doing other people's projects you know because i do a number of films and so on and so forth. So yeah, I mean, I go out there. I, I, I you know, I always uh, I like bring Mar- Mario Van Peebles' um, "Sweet Sweetback's Badass" yeah. song. The, the book on the making of the film on that's my flight book. You know, until I finish it, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, or not Mario Mel- Melvin. Um,
2: yeah, Melvin Van Peebles.
1: And yeah. Uh, yeah, and then two. I got to say this because you always someone like, oh you know these projects well, like. Doing Colvin Two, so we do like these limited runs of T-shirts. And can I tell people where they can potentially get these? Absolutely, make this for sure dream oh, yeah. come true. So, if you're interested in Colvin Two T-shirts, go to colvinfilm.square.site dot site, and we just do a limited run. So it's not like oh my god, it's it's there's only so many, and you can get on the waiting list or whatever. It's dot Square dot site, Colvin Two T-shirts, and then that helps to cause that continues to make the dream come true um, and yeah. that does not preclude the mortis carrier six because that's coming out this year too <laughs>
0: <Today>. <laughs> lots of projects man well next time you're in la the three of us should get together and yeah uh, we'll bring in ty west too be,
2: be awesome next time we're all out here we got to we got to do this in person
0: yeah that will be done have a pumpkin beer somewhere
2: <laughs> cold pumpkin Absolutely. beers for all
0: Cold pumpkin beers for all. (laughs) Well, guys, stay safe and stay healthy. And uh, thank you so much for a great conversation today.
2: Oh, it was a pleasure, Chris. Thank you. And thank you, Mark, man. And stay safe and keep creating. It's really great to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, guys. Cheers, guys. All right, guys. See ya.